1: Welcome to episode 37. Today, we'll conclude the interview with Steve Schwartz. Steve has written the book, Evil Robots, Killer Computers, and Other Myths, The Truth About AI and the Future of Humanity, published on February 9th. He has a PhD from Johns Hopkins University in cognitive science and has been a serial AI entrepreneur, starting successful analytics companies such as Esperant. Last week, we talked about how AI works and how it can lead to bias, the challenge of common sense reasoning, and analyzed some recent conversations with GPT-3, among many other things. This week, we'll get into some detail of the effects of automation on jobs and much more. Let's get to the conclusion of our interview. Where should we draw the boundary and say AI begins or ends? As you said, when you started your last company, you had to erase every mention of AI because we were in an AI winter and you wouldn't get any money if you called it that. It's the opposite way around now. If someone comes out with a toaster and says, now powered by AI, what litmus test do we apply to determine whether that's a valid claim?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's an interesting question because why is powered by AI so important? And I think it's the term artificial intelligence. If we had started calling it something like computational statistics, which, you know, is arguably more accurate, would we still be asking these questions? In 1976, a colleague of mine at Yale, Professor Drew McDermott, wrote an article called Artificial Intelligence and Natural Stupidity. And in that article, he took his AI colleagues to task for naming everything they did with these glamorous names like general problem solver, you know, which was a system that did some very impressive things, but it certainly wasn't able to solve problems in general. And I actually wrote a blog post about a month ago called Artificial Intelligence and Natural Stupidity Revisited, in which I, which I said, you know, we're doing the same thing today. We're using terms like intelligence that don't really apply. We're using terms like inference, and all the terms that we talk about with respect to this field are overblown terms, and I think they lead to misunderstandings.
1: And, and this is part of the problem. that, As you say, our terminology now overlaps with human cognition to a degree that is confusing. The very term artificial intelligence makes us think of a person, a robot version of a person that's performing something from science fiction. And yet, as you say, a lot of this is statistics. It's just finding a way of drawing a straight line through a a bunch of points half the time. And that's linear regression. The fact that you can do it in more than two dimensions is not particularly impressive. It's just a longer equation. But then there are things which, like for instance, neural networks, that's where I tend to draw the line is if it's learning in a way that we didn't have to figure out how to do it symbolically, we didn't have to figure out an algorithm, we just trained it and it figured out how to do something, then I'd like to at least put that within the boundaries of artificial intelligence.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a fair boundary. Uh, With statistics, you have to identify the features and with neural networks, you don't have to identify the features. The neural networks figure out what the features are and then compute the equations. And I think that's a fair dividing line.
1: Right. I think we're both on the same path here of trying to dispel myths about AI and clarify what it really is so that people can evaluate it fairly, because there's a lot of hype in both directions about it, including, you mentioned Elon Musk, but the other end of the scale, you have Ray Kurzweil, who's predicting human-level consciousness, by 2029 in AIs and fantastic benefits from that. And he has some serious credentials as as well. So he's earned a seat at the table. Granted, he's quite transparent about his motivations. But to bring it down to where we are now, there is a lot of talk about AI automation and a number of highly profiled studies about the threat to jobs and where do you think we should find clarity in that question?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I think, number one, we have to realize that we're not going to build these super-intelligent computers that can take all our jobs. You know, IBM said in one ad that Watson could read 800 million pages a second or a minute. You know, and that that kind of conjures up images of computers that are going to be able to read every manual and learn every job and take every class and what's going to be left for humans. Well, that's not happening. That's just not happening. Computers can't read manuals in order to figure out how to do a job, can't take classes to figure out how to do a job. And, you know, that's not going to happen anytime soon and maybe never. So what is going to happen? And then you get into what jobs are vulnerable. And really, The only jobs that are gonna be taken strictly by AI are ones that can be characterized as classification tasks. Those are the ones that can be learned by a machine and tasks requiring visual classification are especially vulnerable. Spotting terrorists in airports, reading MRIs, sorting parts in a factory. And the other class are customer service jobs that involve following a script. And those are only vulnerable now because of advances in speech recognition. On the other hand, Computers can't learn to do any task that requires common sense reasoning. No one knows how to build common sense into computers. So any jobs that require true understanding of language are safe. Um, And this means jobs requiring people-oriented skills in finance, marketing, sales, and HR are probably safe from AI for lifetimes and maybe forever. But there's a big but. But they're not necessarily safe from non-AI technology automation like traditional computer software. And I think that's where people get confused. They lump all automation into the AI category.
1: So what's an example of traditional computer automation that could pose a threat in the future to jobs? E-commerce is decimating retail.
0: Word processors took a lot of secretarial jobs. Really, almost everything you do with computers is to automate some type of job. So with traditional computer programming, where you're not building learning programs, you're just keying in exact instructions for computers, you can do things that eat into those people oriented tasks in finance, marketing, sales, and HR. And that's been happening for a long time and, and, and it will continue to happen. But that's not AI.
1: Especially in the field of automation of employment, the surprise is by AI seem to mount up. For instance, there is automation of interviewing people by video now. And there's AI that will analyze their emotions and the way they conduct themselves. I'm not saying I endorse it, but it is being used. I didn't have any... Great enthusiasm for the automated tools for resume scanning before that to just check boxes on what words people had in their resumes, but I understand why companies use those because they didn't have the workforce to evaluate them any other way. And, and, the, and so that's something that one would have thought before it was done would be in the safe category, interviewing maybe at the first level. Candidates, And then one would also have thought that automation would happen at the menial end of the scale, the burger flippers, and there's even been attempts to automate burger flipping. But then parts of jobs, and I think this is where we have trouble understanding this, parts of jobs have been automated, like reading radiological scans. And it's a very hard thing for a person to do. It requires years of training and expertise, and one would have thought that that was safe, but it turns out that that expertise is pretty much in the same category as being a world champion chess or go player. That one can be automated. It doesn't mean that the entire job of radiologist disappears, but now we have to evaluate how much of a job could be automated And then statistically, if you can automate nine tenths of someone's job and there's ten people employed doing that for a company, they may end up laying off nine of them. Is that a reasonable analysis? And what's the extent to which AI could play a part in that?
0: Yeah, no, I think that's exactly the right way to look at it. You need to break jobs down into tasks. And some of those tasks can be automated and some can't. But if we're gonna worry about AI, we need to look at what really is AI. Because if we look at the history of automation, you know, whether we start 200 years ago, with automation on farms and factories, or we just look at the last 50 years of computer software. Automation has created more jobs than it's destroyed, and I don't mean to minimize the impact on people of losing their job to automation. It's one of the worst things that can happen to people. But the fact of the matter is, on a net job basis, automation has always been a positive. And the big question is whether AI per se is going to change that. And I don't think so. Again, when I come back to it's really just the only thing you're going to do with AI are those classification tasks. And, you know, to some extent, the natural language processing tasks, which are either a result of speech recognition or the result of word matching, which is mostly uh, conventional programming.
1: Mm. And one of the landmark studies about automation and employment was the Oxford Martin study, which is quoted a lot because it said 47% of jobs could be automated. And looking at the data there, what they did was break down several hundred tasks, several hundred types of job by how repetitive their tasks were, which is what caused them to rank point of sale clerks high on the risk of automation because a lot of what they do, ringing up things at a cash register, folding clothes and putting them in a bag, is is repetitive. The thing is that that would require advanced robotics to automate. So I don't think that their jobs are nearly in as much peril as, on the other hand, they rated CEOs as being 5% automatable. And yet within a couple of years, an article in Forbes was already saying 20% of it could be automated. I think that figure is probably quite higher than that given the kind of knowledge work that that embodies. So once again, it seems that in that study, we're setting the criteria in the wrong place. We're not uh, understanding the uniqueness of AI's capabilities, which is not to say that they're, extraordinary in terms of general intelligence or common sense, but they are unique in ways that it seems we haven't figured out properly yet.
0: Yeah, I think the two pitfalls you run into in a lot of those studies are, number one, assuming that AI is going to become really intelligent, which isn't happening, and number two, confusing AI with traditional computer software. And that's especially important because we have a long track record of examining the impact of traditional computer software. And it just
1: hasn't taken more jobs than it's produced. And there's no reason to think that it will moving forward. You talk about fake news, some in your book, and the role that AI can play in that. That's, of course, a huge topic. And to what extent should we be concerned about the potential of AI damaging our society in its ability or our ability to communicate and empathize with each other?
0: Yeah, you know, recent events have completely changed my thinking on this. I have to I have to admit. You know, I've always thought that it's just been an issue of teaching people how to do a little bit of research so that they don't get fooled by the Nigerian prince emails. But the percentage of people, you know, that believe in all these conspiracy theories like QAnon, you know, really has me rethinking that. And none of that has to do with AI. So You know, with AI, you can generate conceivably more of those articles so that more people will see more articles and it'll make the problem bigger. But I don't even know how you attack the problem um, Mm. that we have without AI. It's just amazing what people believe.
1: It has the potential to be propaganda at an unprecedented scale. I mean, in World War II, the Allies dropped leaflets over Germany. So you were carpet bombing the population with propaganda in that way. The much more effective mechanism for subverting a population would be something like the Nazi sympathizer who was, you didn't know was that, but they would just ask questions of you that would make you suspect your leadership or not trust them. But of course, that's not the same scale as dropping 100,000 leaflets over Berlin. Now, AI has the potential for doing the voice in the ear at the scale of the leaflet carpet bombing because you can replicate it as many times as you want and carry on conversations of that nature or publish articles. Frankly, I thought we would see more of that by now than I'm aware of. And I wonder if it's around the corner and if you have any evaluation of what we might do or prepare for.
0: Yeah, no, it's a a scary thought. And I'm I'm in the same place as you on that. I'm surprised that we haven't seen more. A year ago, I, I wouldn't have expected to have a, a big impact because I thought people would be smarter about figuring it out. But I don't have that confidence anymore. But it, it's a big problem. We're, you know, we're going to need to be using AI sniff out fake news. It's a, it's a hard thing to do, but a lot of smart people are working on that. You know, that that's that's something that's absolutely going to have to happen. You know, I think there are political issues that have surfaced now with the Facebooks of the world and the Twitters of the world starting to do a little bit of censorship. Those issues are going to have to be figured out. So it's a a big problem with a lot of dimensions. And I'm not sure that AI is, you know, it'll, it'll exacerbate the problem, but I don't think it's going to cause the problem or it'll exacerbate it some, but I don't know how much.
1: If you had a couple of billion dollars to invest in AI fundamental or applied research, where would you spend it to get the most effect that you'd like to see?
0: That's a good question. I think one of the up and coming areas in AI that I think is going to be really hot in 2021 are companies that are building systems that explain, check for bias, and monitor production AI systems. So you put a system into production, it starts not working well as it used to work when it was first trained. It can also acquire biases. can become non-explainable. There are a lot of things that you need to monitor for. It, it may be that an alternative system that you are looking at starts working better. Companies that are, you know, that, that's an area of, of my personal focus for investing right now. Of course, I'm not putting a couple of billion dollars to work. But that's an area that I think is a good investment area right now.
1: We've talked a lot about what AI can't do and what it shouldn't do or what we should be afraid of it doing. What are the good things about AI that we can look forward to?
0: So we've we've already seen just a lot of things come out of AI that we wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Speech recognition, Google Translate, recognizing our photos. And we're starting to see breakthroughs in the medical area with protein folding and reading x-rays and diagnosing diseases. And anywhere where you can take a set of data and train an AI system to make a classification, we can see good results. And I think the applications of that pattern of training on data and classifying, we're just going to see more and more of that, and it's going to impact more areas of our life, and it's going to be very beneficial.
1: Hmm. Well, this has been a far-ranging conversation. I wonder if we should open up common sense. I said we would maybe get back to that and we have talked a lot about common sense. We've mentioned the term a lot. Common sense and understanding is one of those things that we say AI can't do, maybe never will do. But I wonder how well we understand common sense. How should we even evaluate common sense? If at some point AI gets good enough that we say that there's contention about that, someone contends that this does have common sense, what test should we apply? Yeah,
0: so one thing about common sense is that People have said to me, well, not everybody has common sense. Common sense is something that even a lot of people don't have. So why are we talking about it with respect to computers? So let's talk for a minute about what we mean by common sense, because every single human being has common sense and people use common sense all day long. When you go to make breakfast, you know that the milk is in the fridge and you know that the cereal is in the pantry. You know that to get the cereal in the bowl, you tip the box but not too much, or you'll get cereal over the counter. You know not to release your grasp on the milk carton because gravity will take over, the milk will drop, it'll spill all over the floor, and you'll have a mess to clean up. People know a huge number of little things about the world and how to use that knowledge to interact with their environments. It's that knowledge that no one really has a clue how to build into computers.
1: But there's a difference between the knowledge and the means of assimilating it. If I pull someone out of the jungle of New Guinea who's never seen a refrigerator, they won't know how to find the milk in my kitchen. But they can learn it. They have a structure for that 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 can plug into. I've got children who are now ages 7 and 11, and we've had to do a lot of that kind of plugging in of facts. But they have structures for fitting it in. They have frameworks that I have seen evolve. And before they had language, there wasn't so much for that. But once they started being able to speak, then that took off. And I think a lot of what we say AI can't do at the moment is a result of not having the weight of trying. We've only had, I think, one attempt at creating common sense. It was Doug Lynette's psych project, which was let's keep typing in facts about the world that are the sort of things that one keeps explaining to one's children and they managed to build up because they have the framework to put into it and so they did the same thing with the psych project and people were endlessly typing in things like most birds can fly penguins can't and and the hope was that well if we put enough of these together millions upon millions of them it will develop common sense still didn't happen so is there still something about the structure the the framework that builds the foundation for common sense
0: yeah you know and i think people talk about Good old-fashioned AI, like we used to do in the 70s and 80s in a pejorative way. One of the things we focused on a lot back then was how you represent knowledge in a way that can build that foundation. You know, And what happened was Doug Leonard's attempt at building psych was one way of using one representation and trying to put all the knowledge in the world in. But what really happened, what really spoiled good old-fashioned AI was that we realized not only was it hard to figure out what the right representations were. But once you did, it was just too hard to put all that knowledge in. And then we segued into machine learning, where it's like there's no native knowledge, no native data structures. Everything is learned, so you don't need to figure out representations. The system will learn them. And the hope is, for example, with GPT-3, if you train a computer to figure out what the next word is, to predict what the next word is, then it'll have to learn enough about the world to predict that next word accurately. I don't see that happening. You have people like Gary Marcus and you know Joshua Tenenbaum at, at MIT who are effectively saying, Hey, we've got to go back, look at how the human brain works, start going back and rethinking things like representations, and you know, in effect, going back to good old-fashioned AI and, and maybe using it in conjunction with neural networks in a hybrid manner. But you're talking about just going back and revisiting some of those really, really hard problems.
1: As you say, a hard problem, and one we don't have any more time to investigate at this point, we've, we've run out of time here and it's been fascinating. So thank you very much, Steve. What would you like to say to our listeners about, how would you advise them if they are thinking about going into the field of AI at the moment?
0: It's a great field, and there's a tremendous amount of opportunity, especially what's going on in some of the big companies that have big laboratories. You know, anybody who can get in into those laboratories is going to learn a tremendous amount and come out with tremendous skills. Joining smaller companies, of course, is a crapshoot, and you don't necessarily get the mentorship. But AI and data science is a great field with just tremendous potential for young people to get into it.
1: And how should people get in touch with you if you'd like them to do that or follow your work or obtain your book? Yeah, thanks for asking that.
0: So my new book will be released February 9th, 2021. So by the time this podcast airs, it will already be released. It's available at everywhere where books are sold, such as Amazon. And you can follow my blog on my website at AIperspectives.com. You'll also find a free 400-page ebook on that website, and you can reach me at steve at AIperspectives.com.
1: Fantastic. That book, again, is Evil Robots, Killer Computers, and Other Myths, The Truth About AI and the Future of Humanity by Steve Schwartz. Steve, thank you for coming on the show.
0: This was great, Peter. I really enjoyed it. And, and you know, we didn't get to talk about self-driving cars.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Next time. Next time. That's the end of the interview with Steve Schwartz. You can find Steve at www.aiperspectives.com, and his Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn handles are in the show transcript. In today's news ripped from the AI headlines, last October, researchers of Karlsruhe Institute of Technology reported that they had succeeded in developing a computer system that outperforms humans in recognizing spontaneously spoken language with minimum latency. What does that mean? Well, Alex Weibel, professor for informatics at KIT, said that, quote, when people talk to each other, there are stops, stutterings, hesitations such as er or hm, laughs and coughs, lots of which you would hear on this show if we didn't have them edited out by Lee. Any of you fellow Toastmasters out there know how seriously we take those filler words. We have someone at each meeting specifically assigned to counting how many each speaker uses and reporting the counts at the end of the meeting. Those filler words and sounds make transcription hard for AI, but now Weibel says that their system has reached an error rate of 5%, which makes it better than the average human error rate of 5.5%. That's a big step, but it doesn't mean that human transcribers like Laurie, who does these episodes, are out of a job yet because what AI can't do is go back over its errors, recognize them, and make better choices. I can tell you that Laurie is batting a lot higher than 95%. Next week, I'll be talking with Beth Singler, a research fellow at the University of Cambridge, who explores the social, ethical, philosophical, and religious implications of advances in AI and robotics. She has produced a series of short documentaries styled as dramatizations, the first one of which was called Pain in the Machine. We'll be talking about that and much more next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You.
0: Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles At a i n u dot net. That's a i a n d y o u dot net. Where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.